Today on Inside Politics, Hunter in the House. Right now, the president's son is face-to-face with the Republicans trying to impeach his father. We'll bring you the latest from his crucial testimony, which could deliver a final blow to the GOP's fizzling impeachment investigation. Plus, Republicans are rushing to publicly say they support IVF. So why are they planning to block a Senate bill today that would protect the procedure so many need to start a family? Cue the campaign ads. And it's a must-win state for November, but Michigan's primary is exposing warning signs for both Joe Biden and Donald Trump. This hour, I'll talk to a top Biden campaign official about their plans to address the president's problems in this pivotal swing state. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start today on Capitol Hill, where this moment, Hunter Biden is behind closed doors testifying in front of the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees. The president's son says his deposition today should put an end to the GOP's impeachment inquiry. In his opening statement, he had this message to Republicans. He said, quote, for more than a year, your committees have hunted me in your partisan political pursuit of my dad. You have trafficked in innuendo, distortion and sensationalism, all while ignoring the clear and convincing evidence staring you in the face. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live on Capitol Hill. Melanie, how's it going behind closed doors? Yeah, well, we are about two hours into this deposition, and so far, Hunter Biden has not pleaded the fifth, according to Republican Nancy Mace. He is sitting there answering questions as he is in the hot seat. But Democrats emerged from the room moments ago on a break, and they said that Republicans are clearly on a baseless fishing expedition. They have not uncovered any evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors, and they said this is all a waste of time, especially with a looming government funding deadline on Friday. Just take a listen. What we saw, I think, was a rather embarrassing spectacle where the Republicans continued to uh, belabor completely trivial points. They uh, seemed to be obsessively focused on speakerphones and use of speakerphone. I did not know that that was the devil's technology, but apparently it is. That first hour of this much-anticipated testimony was the nail in the coffin to what is a complete bogus and sham impeachment inquiry. He's a flight risk. He was charged with lying to the FBI. Now, Republicans have been eager to secure this testimony. They fought for months to make it happen. They did ultimately agree on some terms that include agreeing to release the transcript within potentially the next 24 hours so so as not to have any selective leaks. And they also are not videotaping this as they have with other witnesses. And Republicans really want to grill Hunter Biden about his overseas business deals, his role on a Ukrainian energy company, and whether his father other personally benefited financially from those overseas deals. But in his opening statement, Dana, as you read, he made crystal clear that his father has not profited off of his son's foreign business deals. And he really is just the latest in a parade of witnesses who have testified to just that. In fact, an FBI agent was recently uh, charged by the FBI for lying about a foreign bribery allegation. So this is really a make or break moment for Republicans. Potentially could go late into the night here, though, Dana. Melanie, thank you so much for that reporting. Let's talk more about this with my panel here, CNN's Jeff Zeleny, Leanne Caldwell of The Washington Post, and CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, I want to start with you because uh, part of the reason, the big reason why um, 
as Dan Goldman said uh, in a classic Dan Goldman soundbite, that this is the nail in the coffin of the impeachment inquiry is because the Republicans were relying a lot on an FBI informant who has now been arrested because he right. allegedly lied to the FBI, specifically about the things that he said about the Bidens. Um, the DOJ informant made it all up. This is, these are the allegations against this informant. Uh, he's still actively peddling new lies that, that could impact U.S. elections. He claimed that Russian officials fed him information about Hunter Biden. Well, I mean, look, I mean, th th this is the last gasp of this, uh, of this uh, effort by the Republicans, but we should be clear that they had really turned up very little to show for what they've been pursuing. So even before the charges against the informant uh, Alexander Smirnov, the, 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 this, this was a petering out effort, right? It was an effort that was already uh, having trouble because they had not, they had, the Republicans had, had promised a lot. They said that they were going to show evidence that Joe Biden directly uh, benefited from his son's uh, business activities in, 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 in you know, other countries. And they have not been able to do that. None of the witnesses have been able to, to uh, substantiate that. And so that's part of the problem is that, you know, now you have the one last part of this, which was this guy that was making this very big claim of, a, of, of bribes, $10 million in bribes, and now he's been charged by the FBI and he's going to go to trial in, in April. I just think we cannot underscore the main point of what you just said, Evan, enough, which is that there aren't any facts that they have that they can back up with any evidence. Right. It's all innuendo, rumor, political allegation at this point. Um, just one other example, uh, the sort of very thin uh, accusation that they had was that, oh, we have this, uh, these checks that Hunter Biden and the president's brother James wrote to the president. And those are pieces of evidence that show that the president was involved in some scheme um, that we're not really sure about. Uh, Paula Reed was up on Capitol Hill this morning, asked James Comer, uh, the committee chair, about this. Listen to how that went down. It's saying the Bidens. We're talking about President Biden specifically. Mm -hmm. What evidence do you have that he profited off his son's foreign business? We have two checks. Joe Biden received two payments. We found this through subpoenaed bank records. Two payments. You're putting steps between so the check and president. The steps are called money laundering. That's what the steps are called. Except not. No. Except not. Here's just one example uh, of a fact check by our great Daniel Dale. Banking records, the one that he's referring to, ones he's referring to, reviewed by CNN, which Comer's committee possesses, his own committee, provide substantial evidence in support of the Democrats' assertions that there was indeed a $200,000 loan from Joe Biden to James Biden less than two months before the James Biden loan repayment check uh, to Joe Biden for the same amount. Uh, that's just one example of fact checks that don't back up these very, very serious allegations and all of this time and effort spent by these Republicans on what looks like a, the wildest of goose chases. Republicans getting out in front of their skis might be the understatement of the year. This is something that once they gained the majority, uh, they said that they were going to impeach Joe Biden in any way that they were able to do it. And they have been trying to get there. Now, remember, they took a vote 
to proceed with this impeachment inquiry, which was also controversial within the Repu House Republicans. There's some more centrist Republicans who didn't think it took a lot of persuading to get them here. But uh, but Democrats have been or Republicans have been unable, as we have all, you've all said very eloquently, to connect any sort of dots and find any sort of wrongdoing by the president. All that said, uh, it does not mean that this still isn't a political problem mm -hmm. for the administration because you can't put all of this sort of back in the bottle. I mean, this has been something that is uh, has been a drip, drip, drip for months and years, and now suddenly to find out, oh wait not true, the political damage in some respects yeah. has been done. Um, so uh, we can't um, sort of lose sight of that. But going forward here, this will be looked at as a chapter uh, where Congress clearly is following the lead of uh, not a branch of government, mm -hmm. but the fourth of state, you know, a partisan, partisan uh, media. And the former president. And the former president, of course, talking all that. But I think the practical matter of this vis-a-vis, um, -vis, uh, it contributes to the president's lower approval rating. Mm -hmm. When you talk to voters and other things, they believe that he is complicit in this uh, and, and people aren't following kind of the, the news, so that's a problem. Right, and, and kind of that is that is kind of the point, right? And I think um, I think a lot of us, uh, you know, certainly we've been covering this, we've heard from people close to Republicans who've told them and warned them that there was no there there, mm -hmm. um, but they still pursued it because that is the point. The point, it is sort of following the script of, of, of what the Republicans did to Hillary Clinton with Benghazi, right? There was nothing there, but they spent months uh, dinging her and, and, and damaging her. And in the end, Chaffetz went on television and said, we kind of, that's what we did. Yeah, and, and your point about not being able to put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, as much as we go on and give the facts and give the information and try to give the reality as much as we know it as we learn it and have said for months, if not longer, these are the Republican claims. They have not give us, given us any evidence really to back it up. Um, you, you can't change the echo chamber uh, through which a lot of Americans get their information. And it's hard to imagine, unfortunately, that the tone and tenor is going to change much, even though the facts aren't on their side. And this is something, you know, Hunter Biden gave this uh, opening statement that we read part of behind closed doors today. But he actually, in a rare uh, interview with Axios on Monday, said the following, which really struck us. He said, I've always been in awe of people who have stayed clean and sober through tragedies and obstacles few people ever face. I have something much bigger than even myself at stake. We are in the middle of a fight for the future of democracy. Mm -hmm. This is kind of more of the human element of what we're it's talking about thing, here. Yeah. It's very personal. He uh, is very open about the fact that he is an addict. He was uh, very much off the wagon when a lot of this happened. And part of what he is trying to do, he's saying here, is stay clean for, her, for himself, for his family, for his father, and he believes for politics, which is democracy. Yeah, and he's also insinuating there that he knows that this is also inherently political yeah. as well. Uh, Donald Trump, every single campaign stump speech he gives, the words come out of his mouth, Joe Biden, the most corrupt president in history. And so this is part of the strategy of, um, of trying to convince voters that that is true.
You know, look, I think with, with, with Hunter Biden and one of, the, one of the key parts of this has been, you know, Jill Biden and her role in trying to keep Hunter close. And, you know, the, you see all these stories about why is Hunter showing up at these events at the White House? Why isn't the president pushing him away? I think part of the thing has been about this very personal, familial, uh, you know, tragedy that they've been living, which is to try to keep him sober and to keep him uh, safe. Um, and that's one reason why you see him there. They keep him close for that reason. And you can see what he's saying in, in return, which is they're going after me because they're trying to make me use so that they could hurt my father. And that is a, a crazy thing to have to hear in uh, 2024 politics. Yeah, and in 2024 society when we are w right. much more aware of addiction. Everybody stand by. Donald Trump has asked a New York appeals court to delay the requirement that he quickly cough up 400 $54 million in his civil fraud case. It's the latest step the former president has taken to avoid paying that massive penalty. CNN's Kara Scannell joins me now. Kara, what's Trump's goal in asking for this delay? Does he think that it's possible he can get away with not paying it? And is it? Well, he's well, damn it, he's trying to buy time here because the clock is ticking on when he has to put up money or, you know, either cash or in the form of a bond uh, to, in order to prevent the New York Attorney General's office from trying to move forward to enforce the judgment. And one way they could do that is to try to seize some of the properties. Now, he could stop that if he posts the bond right now, but he's asking the judges for more time to come up with the money. And that's really what this what is at issue here. The New York Attorney General's office is opposing it. They just filed a letter in this case um, asking appeals court to deny it, but there was likely to be some briefing on this matter um, over the next uh, couple of weeks. You know, this is all happening, though, as Trump is facing more than half a billion dollars that he has to put up between the New York attorney general's case and the defamation case involving E. Jean Carroll. In that case, a jury awarded uh, Carol, $83.3 million. Trump's clock is ticking on that. He asked the judge overseeing that case on Friday to delay enforcement of, of that bond as well. So he's having to come up with a lot of money. Now he's asking different courts to give him more time to do so. We'll wait to see what these judges say. Dana? Kara, thank you so much for that reporting. Appreciate it. And coming up, President Biden and former President Trump may have won Michigan, but they're facing Pretty big warning signs with the results there. What does it all mean for November? We'll tell you after a quick break. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. There's concern today among Democrats after 101,000 Michigan Democrats voted for uncommitted over President Joe Biden. That, of course, was the result of a protest campaign over the administration's handling of the Israel-Gaza war. The chair of the Progressive Caucus in Congress, Pramila Jayapal, told Armanu Raju that this protest was no surprise, saying, quote, This is exactly what I warned about several months ago. The war on Gaza is a deep moral issue, and the lack of attention and empathy for, for this perspective from the administration is breaking apart the fragile coalition we built to elect Joe Biden in 2020. It's not just the far left. Listen to what the number two Senate Democrat said this morning. I am worried. I've talked to them, and I know they feel very strongly and have a right to 
the situation facing the Palestinians in Gaza is horrible. It's a humanitarian disaster. And the sooner the uh, hostilities come to an end and the sooner the relief is, is delivered, the sooner we're going to see some, I think, people sitting back and taking stock of what the real choices are in November. Our panel is back now. Jeff Zelina, you just came back from Michigan this morning, right? right? And I know you've got some new reporting on what's going on in the Democratic Party. Senator Durbin talking there about uh, needing a solution. I mean, this is a example of where there is a deep political problem, but it is likely only to be resolved by a policy solution. And this is something that uh, talking to a variety of Michigan Democrats uh, during my time reporting there, uh, one said the anger will not be resolved with meetings. It will take bold action. So they're really calling on uh, President Biden to uh, do something bold, to keep distancing himself from Prime Minister Netanyahu, which he's done. I mean, if you track the timeline of President Biden's own response to this since October 7th, Absolutely. he's already heard this message. This did not come as a surprise to him. The number did, the 101,000 people. I talked to one Michigan Democrat who supports Joe Biden yesterday, and he said anything over 50,000, that could be an issue. It was twice that. Mm. 100,000. But in addition to that, this could be a floor. Another warning sign I heard from a Michigan Democrat who, again, wants President Biden to be reelected, said it took an act to go out and vote uncommitted. What about the people who didn't vote? Mm -hmm. Young people in Ann Arbor, in Lansing, across the state, uh, the the apathy and the just a disinterest in this campaign, that is, in the words of this Democrat, a much more worrisome sign. So look, the warning signs are there. Um, former Congressman Andy Levin told me last night, after you interviewed him, actually, he was standing in Dearborn. He said, oh, this could be a constructive effort. It sends a warning sign in advance to the White House. Uh, they have eight months to sort of figure this out. Yeah, and Leanne, I know you've been doing some, you all have been doing ex extensive reporting on this. But because you mentioned Andy Levin, he was a uh, congressman from there, from a very well-known political, Democratic political family in Michigan. Listen to part of our conversation last night. Dana, my goal here personally was to get through to the president's campaign that there is no political solution to this problem. I don't see how we can win the White House again without winning Michigan. And I don't think we can win Michigan unless the president changes course on Gaza. And Leanne... I think you all noticed that last night the Biden campaign put out a statement that was kind of vanilla and didn't mention uncommitted vanilla about winning Michigan. Right. That changed this morning when they saw the numbers go up, 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 up. Here's what uh, the campaign said this morning. President Biden shares the goal of many of the folks who voted uncommitted, which is an end to violence and a just and lasting peace. That is what he is working towards. We will earn their votes between now and November. Yeah, um, they are realizing, I think, after these results last night that um, it is a huge challenge for him. Of course, now Michigan has um, one of the biggest Arab American communities in the country. Um, Pennsylvania is another state that has high percentages as well. Um, and so, but Michigan is, what Andy Levin said is absolutely right, that it is necessary to win uh, for Biden or presumably Trump to be the nominee. Uh, but there was also a lot of warning signs for Donald Trump, yeah. too. And there have been throughout the entire campaign. That's I, a good point. I want to say that I think that Democrats have to decide who they are and what they stand for in this moment. 
It's not only Arab Americans in terms of a marginalized group that feel as though they are treated as expendable by the Democratic Party. Right now you have, you know, mixed families with undocumented folks, but with citizen children that are feeling alienated. You have black voters feeling alienated as well. And I think for a long time, this is beyond President Biden. Uh, Democrats have treated some of the parts of their coalition as expendable. And they can't afford to continue to do that without uh, really voters saying in a very loud way that the jig is up. You mentioned the Republicans, and I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that Nikki Haley is still in the race. She didn't compete at all in Michigan, and she still got, you know, a, she didn't win at all, but she got a sizable amount of the, of the vote. I had a conversation with her last night about where the party is. I want you to listen to part of it. Isn't it possible that the party has moved and the party is about Donald Trump and not what you're describing, which might be the party of yesterday? It, it is very possible. And, you know, that's what we're doing. What I'm saying to my Republican Party family is we are in a ship with a hole in it. And we can either go down with the ship and watch the country go socialist left, or we can see that we need to take the life raft and move in a new direction. Yeah. I mean, look, she won uh, almost 30% of the vote, as you said, with uh, barely campaigning there. She was there just a couple days. Look, the reality is she's been uh, broadcasting this message, sending this warning uh, with every passing week louder and louder and louder. That's as loud as she's been and as succinct as she's been. The question is, is the party listening? This is the party of Donald Trump. I mean, so we are seeing this clear dividing line uh, now. But getting 30 percent, those are votes that uh, Donald Trump will need in Michigan. And there's some votes that Joe Biden would love. Yeah, there's a large percentage of the party that is the party of Donald Trump. But there's also this 20, 30, sometimes 40 percent who doesn't support Donald Trump. At this point, when it's a when it's a matchup between the two, and that's a challenge for the party. We're going to have to take a quick break. Up next, we're going to speak with one of President Biden's top campaign advisors about his takeaways from last night's results. Stay with us. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. This is CNN Breaking News. Big breaking news at this moment. We are told that Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader right now, uh, and he has been the leader since 2007 of the Senate Republicans, will announce shortly on the floor of the U.S. Senate that he is going to step down as leader. We expect that he will say he will stay on through this year's election. Again, this is very, very big news. This is according to a source familiar with his plans. Uh, We do know that uh, his office has formally said that he is going to make extended remarks on the Senate floor. You see the Senate floor right now. We are watching and waiting for McConnell to come out. He just turned 82 years old. He is the longest serving leader 
uh, in the United States Senate uh, historically, and he, that has uh, been a, a milestone that he has held on to uh, for now a couple of years, right, Jeff Zeleny? I have my panel here. We're waiting for Manu Raju uh, to get to the camera, and as we wait for him, oh, Manu, you're there. Manu, uh, can you feel the sort of marble shaking as this news is going around the United States Capitol? No question. This is a humongous moment in Republican politics and a, really a titan of the United States Senate, someone who has been instrumental in driving the Republican agenda for the past two decades, serving longer than any party leader in United States Senate history, about to announce in a matter of moments, this is it, his time is done as Republican leader. Manu, we're going to hear, Manu, Senator McConnell We lost Elaine's younger sister, Angela just a few weeks ago, when you lose a loved one, particularly at a young age, there's a certain introspection that accompanies the grieving process. Perhaps it is God's way of reminding you of your own life's journey to reprioritize the impact of the world that we will all inevitably leave behind. I turned 82 last week. <clears throat> the end of my contributions are closer than I'd prefer. My career in the United States Senate began amidst the Reagan Revolution. The truth is, when I got here, I was just happy if anybody remembered my name. President Reagan called me Mitch O'Donnell. Close enough, I thought. My life, my wife Elaine and I got married on President Reagan's birthday, February 6th. It's probably not the most romantic thing to admit, but Reagan meant a lot to both of us. For 31 years, Elaine has been the love of my life and I'm eternally grateful to have her by my side. I think back to my first days in the Senate with deep appreciation for the time that helped shape my view of the world. I'm unconflicted about the good within our country and the irreplaceable role we play as the leader of the free world. It's why I worked so hard to get the national security package passed earlier this month. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. That said, I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential to preserving the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan discussed. As long as I'm drawing breath on this earth, I will defend American exceptionalism. So as I've been thinking about when I would deliver some news to the Senate, I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. A moment when I'm certain 
I have helped preserve the ideals I so strongly believe. That day arrived today. My goals when I was narrowly elected to the Senate back in 1984 were fairly modest. Do a good job for the people of Kentucky and convince them that by doing so, they might rehire me for a second term. That was it. That was the plan. If you would have told me 40 years later that I would stand before you as the longest serving Senate leader in American history, frankly, I would have thought you'd lost your mind. I have the honor of representing Kentucky and the Senate longer than anyone else in our state's history. I just never could have imagined, never could have imagined that happening when I arrived here in 1984 at 42. I'm filled with heartfelt gratitude and humility for the opportunity. But now it's 2024. I'm now 82. As Ecclesiastes tells us, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. To serve Kentucky in the Senate has been the honor of my life. To lead my Republican colleagues has been the highest privilege. But one of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job. My colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. I'll finish the job the people of Kentucky hired me to do as well, albeit from a different seat. And I'm actually looking forward to that. So it's time for me to think about another season. I love the Senate. It's been my life. There may be more distinguished members of this body throughout our history, but I doubt there were any with any more admiration for the Senate. After all this time, I still got a thrill walking into the Capitol, and especially on this venerable floor, knowing that we, each of us, have the honor to represent our states and do the important work of our country. But Father, time remains undefeated. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back, hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. As Henry Clay said in this very body in 1850, the Constitution of the United States was not made merely for the generation that then existed but for posterity, unlimited, undefined, endless, 
perpetual posterity. So time rolls on. There'll be a new custodian of this great institution next year. Won't surprise you to know I intend to turn this job over to a Republican majority leader. I have full confidence in my conference to choose my replacement and lead our country forward. There'll be other times to reminisce. I'm immensely proud of the accomplishments I've played some role in obtaining for the American people. Today is not the day to discuss all of that, because as I said earlier, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. There are many challenges we must meet to deliver for the American people, and each will have my full effort and attention. I still have enough gas in my tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics, and I intend to do so with all the enthusiasm with which they've become accustomed. So to my colleagues, thank you for entrusting me with our success. It's been an honor to work with each of you. There'll be plenty of time to express my gratitude in greater detail as I sprint towards the finish line, which is now in sight. I yield the floor. moment in history you're watching as the U.S. Senate gives the longest serving party leader in the U.S. Senate a round of applause after he makes an announcement that he is going to step down from his post in leadership after the November election of this year. Quite emotional uh, for Mitch, for anybody really, but particularly for Mitch McConnell, who doesn't exactly wear his emotions on his sleeve. Uh, but he said that he uh, is going towards the finish line, which is now in sight. Uh, I want to bring in Manu Raju, who is there and has covered uh, Mitch McConnell, maybe almost as long as I have. But um, you, you, the finish line is way further uh, away from your vision <laughs> than, than mine, uh, Manu. Uh, but the fact that he said, I still have enough gas in my tank to disappoint my critics, uh, and I intend to do that with enthusiasm, the enthusiasm that they've been accustomed to. That was just one of the sort of turns of phrase that encaptured and encapsulated, Manu, uh, so much of his tenure, particularly in recent uh, years, because it used to be that much of the criticism that he got was from across the aisle. Yeah. And now it's almost exclusively, I mean, he certainly has critis, critics from Democratic uh, senators and other members, but it's from within his own party because of ha his feelings about Donald Trump and his worldview. Yeah, it's so much has changed. In a lot of ways, the Republican Party has changed underneath him. And mm -hmm. he sort of alluded to that in his comments, saying that he knows the politics have changed within his party. He, of course, when he was the Republican leader under Barack Obama, he gave Barack Obama fits. He led the charge against 
against Obamacare. He took pride in rallying the Mr. GOP conference President. to try to over to repeal Obamacare day after day after day as they were trying to put that piece of legislation together. He, of course, was centrally responsible for shifting the Supreme Court to the right, keeping vacant something that had never been done before, a Supreme Court seat, keeping that vacant. Barack Obama wanted Merrick Garland to fill that seat. Instead, Donald Trump came in, Neil Gorsuch to the seat when he became president. McConnell has said that that was one of his crowning achievements while in office. And then moving forward on getting Brett Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court and Amy Coney Barrett in the aftermath of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, uh, passing, even though he had said he would not confirm one nominee in an election year, did so with another in another election year. That infuriated Democrats. But in this, uh, in the post-Trump era, and particularly in this Congress, he has worked with Democrats. That has infuriated Republicans. He voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the only Republican member in his in his delegation to do that. He supported the bipartisan gun legislation. That also something that was simply not uh, supported by most Republicans and perhaps, perhaps note most significantly been crosswise with Donald Trump in the aftermath of January 6th. That speech that he gave on the Senate floor in the after voting to acquit Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial, but then saying that Donald Trump is morally and practically responsible for January 6th. That has cost him has this, any support with Donald Trump. Trump has bashed him repeatedly on the campaign campaign trail. And Trump has said, frankly, racist things about Elaine Chao, his wife, a former Trump cabinet member, someone, a Taiwanese immigrant. And, the, and they have not talked in more than three years. McConnell still has not endorsed Donald Trump. But one thing, too, has been very clear. The criticism within the GOP, within the Senate GOP conference, is still a small faction, but it's been louder than any time in his tenure as Republican leader. And he certainly knows that. And Dana, this is going to open up a a contested leadership race that will drive the future direction of the Republican Party. Look for three Republican senators. John Thune, who's currently the number two Republican senator, John Cornyn, a former Republican whip, and John Barrasso, the number three Republican senator. All of them could run for this spot in a secret ballot election between that will happen after November. So a lot of jockeying will happen between now and then as members of Congress, the senators, grapple with this historic moment. Yeah, the, bat the battle of the Johns. Um Wow, uh, this is uh, certainly quite a moment. Manu, stand by because I want to bring in uh, Scott Jennings. He is a CNN contributor and a longtime advisor to uh, Mitch McConnell before he was formal and now he's informal. And I would say, Scott, it's probably fair to say a very close friend. Um, you know, I mentioned to Manu that I, uh, I, I don't remember. I've, I, we were talking here. I've seen Senator McConnell get sort of emotional, understandably so, when longtime colleagues pass away. But he, his voice was cracking throughout this entire speech. It was obviously not easy uh, for him to give. And one of the many lines that um, struck me, Scott, uh, was him, and when he talked about his age and the fact that it's time for him to move on, no longer, he said, he's no longer the young man standing in the back hoping people remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. Scott. Yeah. Yeah, listening to his speech today, um, I was struck by that as well, that he is sort of acknowledging um, what a lot of Americans are feeling about uh, their government right now. And, you know, he, you also heard him say that he has many flaws, but 
failure to understand politics is not one of them. And I think that's part of our politics, and it's part of our political conversation. The emotion you heard in his voice is fully related to just how much he reveres the institution. And I think if there's one hallmark of his time in office, it's been defense of and protection of the institution. And he cares about it so deeply because, as he said, it's been his life. I do want to point out, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the Senate terms, he is not up for re-election this year, and his term doesn't run out until 2026. My expectation, and he made this clear, I think, is that he plans to stay in office, finish his term. I think he would likely be in line to be chairman of appropriations, possibly in the next Congress, maybe even have a role in in, uh, setting defense spending policy. So I I think one issue that is is so deeply on his mind right now is America's role in the world and whether we're going to continue to be a superpower that stands up against bullies and dictators and the bad actors on planet Earth. And I think that, that that has been weighing on him, I know personally, and and in some ways, he really has become the heir to the traditional Reagan mantle of the Republican Party. I know it's not in vogue right now, but for a lot of us who've been working for him for 28 years, for me, uh, you know, his his growth into the leadership mantle of the Reagan view of what the United States of America is supposed to be as a global superpower has really been something to behold, and I know how seriously he takes it. Yeah, and that's what he was referring to when he said that he has many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them, uh, referring to the fact that his party is not there, uh, Scott. His party is not there. Well, some people in his party are there, but for the most part, uh, that old Reagan keeping America uh, on the forefront, uh, the leader of the free world, as he put it. So I have to ask you, Scott, about timing, because uh, it's now even more clear than before that Donald Trump is going to be uh, the nominee. Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell do not get along, and that is maybe the understatement of the day, week, or month. And uh, there is already pressure on, or was already pressure on McConnell to endorse Trump, and we can talk about that in a minute. But how much of the reality of Trump being the, the leader of the party in a more formal way did that uh, push Mitch McConnell to make this decision now? Well, I don't actually think it had any uh, effect on him, really. Um, he has been, as he mentioned, grappling with a couple of issues. Number one is his own age, and number two, uh, this family tragedy that uh, the McConnells have suffered recently, which just happened a couple of weeks ago, which kind of happened a little under the radar. It wasn't widely reported, but it, it certainly was a, uh, a devastating moment for them. Uh, but also, I think he's been mulling this over for some months. I mean, as he pointed out, he just turned 82 years old, and he uh, has obviously been the longest-serving leader in Senate history. We're not talking about Senate Republicans. We're talking about the history of the United States of America. He's been doing this job, which, as you know, is extremely stressful <laughs> and hard to do for, for longer than anyone has ever done it. He's also the longest-serving senator in the history of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, mm. which is also no small feat. And so I think I think a combination of all of that over the last few months led him to this decision. But I actually don't think it had anything at all to do with Donald Trump. And I also think that there are some things he has left that he wants to accomplish that perhaps he may be in a better position to accomplish mm-hmm. uh, if he's not the leader and he is in a policy-making role, such as appropriations chairman, 
Uh, I think I think he may be in a better position to accomplish those goals and maybe a little freer to speak yeah. out about what he thinks the United States role in the world should be. When when you're the Senate leader, when you're the leader of any political conference, you you are a little bit shackled on what you can do personally. Sure. But of course, that comes off when you when you lay down the mantle of leadership. Sure, Scott. Thank you so much for uh, hopping on the phone. Uh, you uh, know Mitch McConnell as well as maybe better than uh, anyone who I know uh, in, in the realm of politics and certainly personally, Scott, appreciated. Back with the yeah. panel here. Uh, Jeff Zeleny, you have covered uh, Mitch McConnell for a long time as well. Uh, let's just pick up on the Trump factor. Uh, he was very critical of Donald Trump after, well, even before January 6th, but certainly after January 6th. And Manu mentioned this. It has led to some very, very harsh, inappropriate, downright racist comments from Donald Trump about his wife, who, by the way, Elaine Chao served in the Trump administration until she quit because of her anger about January 6th. Absolutely. And they've not, as Money said, spoken in uh, three years. Uh, um, Scott says the timing is not connected. Um, certainly he is an insider, knows that. But the timing is still coming at a time when we take stock of his tenure in the Senate. Addison Mitch McConnell, born in Alabama, moved to Kentucky, at two years old had polio, did not think he would ever be able to walk, was a Senate page, and just rose through the ranks. And really, if you think about his, his time, uh, he has spanned the Reagan era through the Trump era, unlike anyone else. And that is where he is stepping aside now as leader in November. We will see if Trump gives him the space to do that or calls on him to do so uh, sooner. But I think his worldview is something that has uh, largely uh, vanished from that Senate Republican con conference, uh, which is uh, really remarkable. One thing he always did was win his own races. Uh, and he vowed one thing I can think of that he talked about often that he did not su uh, succeed at was making Barack Obama a one term president. Mm -hmm. That's what he wanted to do back in 2009. He told my friend and colleague Carl Hulse of The New York Times that that was his goal and and didn't do that, of course. But uh, we could talk for hours about his legacy because it's it's so long. And as much as uh, Democrats appreciate him being uh, side by side with President Biden right now on a whole host of issues from infrastructure bill to now the push for funding for Ukraine and Israel as well. Most of them will never forgive him for just, let's be honest, inventing new rules to keep Merrick Garland, Barack Obama's final nominee for the Supreme Court, off the bench. Didn't even give him a hearing. McConnell has a long, extremely partisan history. Uh, he has not been someone who has often reached across the line, uh, across the aisle. He is someone who has looked out for the political interest of himself and mostly his party in maintaining a Senate majority, including that extremely controversial uh, decision to to just to ignore Merrick Garland's. Um, uh, nomination and then do the exact opposite uh, when he when Trump was in the presidency with Amy Coney Barrett. Yep. Um, but it also exposes the evolution not only of McConnell, but also the Republican Party. The fact that now McConnell said just a few weeks ago at the sticks that uh, he is much more aligned with Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden than he is with many of in his own party, especially on issues of foreign policy um, and Ukraine. And uh, he has been challenged, increasingly challenged by his party. Yeah. So this is going, this is a very pivotal time of his stepping down 
uh, for the Republican Party. You covered the Kentucky delegation for a while. I did. So I covered him mostly through the lens of being Kentucky's senior senator. But, you know, he would return home and take a lot of pride in the strategic choices that he made. You have to remember that under the Trump administration, you really have to credit McConnell. Um, Republicans have to credit McConnell for remaking the federal judiciary. There's a strategic discipline there. There's a strategic ruthlessness there. And though Republicans now may dismiss him as a globalist because he's no longer ideologically in line with where the party is headed, a lot of their policy accomplishments they wouldn't have been able to achieve without his discipline. And so as we look to the future of this party now under the leadership of Trump, you have to wonder, can they still be um, as successful in trying to advance some of these conservative policy goals without that level of discipline that McConnell offered to the real chagrin of Democrats. He really anchored Democrats. You know, I mean, you say discipline and the one thing we haven't mentioned because you said we could like sit here for two hours and not even scratch the surface, but his singular focus while Donald Trump was president, not just the Supreme Court, but of packing all of the federal courts with as many conservatives as possible, because he understands and has understood for a very long time that that is really the ultimate way to um, further conservative philosophy. Because presidents come and go. Right. But federal, but federal judges, and in his case, uh, Senate leaders often do not. But boy, this is the, uh, the beginning of the end of an era. He's still, you know, he's not going anywhere. So, and what his, uh, his top, obviously, goal is, is to uh, help Republicans win control of the Senate. That's why I think all of this is uh, an open question to see how the leader of the party, Donald Trump, responds to all this. If he's able to hold on to, to his position, there's a lot of churn underneath him right now. And he's been leader for many cycles where he was like Charlie Brown with the football. He thought he was going to become majority leader. And then first it was the Tea Party. Then it was yep. Trumpism running candidates that didn't get elected in uh, purplish states. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. Big news during this hour. Mitch McConnell saying that he's stepping down as Republican leader in November. Much more on that and all the other political news today. CNN News Central starts after the break.